This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, this is the Talk of Fame Network. I'm Clark, along with Rick and Ron. Ron and I live in the Northeast, while Rick, well, Rick lives and works in Dallas. And I mention that because he flew to Arizona last week to watch his Michigan State Spartans about ASU one day, then saw his Dallas Cowboys fizzle in Carolina the next. So, Goose Man, which was worse? The Spartans. I expected Dallas to lose to Carolina, but I did not expect the Spartans to lose in the desert. <laughs> well, speaking of those Cowboys, blip on the radar for Dallas Goose or reason for concern? I thought their ceiling this season was 9-7, and seven, but without their uh, Pro Bowl center, Travis Frederick, this team will really struggle on offense. And in a passing league, the Cowboys have the worst set of receivers in the NFL. None of this bodes well for Jason Garrett. Uh, it doesn't bode well for me either. I've got their fantasy football kicker. Uh, hey, Ronnie. Uh, Too bad you didn't you have were... your punter. You get a lot of yeah, points. That's right. You get a lot of points. Ron, you were neither Arizona or Texas, but you okay. saw a Texas team, and that would be the Houston Texans, and they floundered in Foxborough. Now, I understand that happens to a lot of teams that come to Foxborough. I get that. But the Texans, uh, they flat out stunk. So who should be more worried, Dallas fans or Texans fans? Well, I think Dallas, because uh, as as bad as it was in some ways for Houston, it was a seven-point uh, uh, game in the – uh, in the fourth quarter with them having a chance to, you know, uh, tie or win the game. They didn't do it. But, um, you know, and that was even after some questionable coaching decisions and a pretty tentative day from Deshaun Watson, who looked like he wasn't mentally recovered yet from uh, the terrible knee injury he had. And he said himself uh, um, the next day that uh, he played terribly. So I, I, th- I think yeah, he's going right. to play better. And, the, and they, even at that, it was a seven-point game. So uh, I'd feel better about them than I would about the Cowboys. Well, guys, we're not worried here at the Talk of Fame Network. We never are because today, well, today we have a lot to get to, including former pass rusher Elmas Dumerville, who announced his retirement two weeks ago, Houston's Vincent Smith, the only rookie wide receiver to start last week, and, and Rich Samini of ESPN.com, who will give us his nominations for the best New York Jets not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame as our countdown continues. And, guys, I'm interested to hear what he has to say because I want to see where he puts Winston Hill, Joe Klecko. And Sam Darnold. <laughs> no, I don't think he should be eligible. Well, as I said, we have a lot to get to today, and we will right after this. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Before we go farther, I want to mention a familiar topic to you guys, and that's future Hall of Famers, a term I know Goose loathes, Ron, you loathe, I loathe, but it's one that's become part of the NFL vocabulary lately, and sure enough, if you guys were listening to that NFL kickoff telecast last week, uh, NBC's Al Michaels called Philadelphia left tackle Jason Peters, quote, Ron, hit it. First ballot Hall of Famer. <laughs> Future Hall of Famer, too. Um, yeah, well, I, listen, I will say this. When I, when I was on my way to Canton last month, flowing, I was flying through uh, Philadelphia. I was stopped by a writer there who was on his way to Cleveland, and um, he covers the Eagles. And uh, he asked me, hey, uh, you're on the Hall of Fame committee, right? And I said, yeah. And he said, 
What are Jason Peters' Hall of Fame chances? I, I don't know. I guess that's a hot topic in Philadelphia. <laughs> but um, if that's the case, I'll put it to you guys because I know what I told him. And, Ron, I'll start with you. Jason Peters, future Hall of Famer or first ballot Hall of Famer? <laughs> first ballot. Oh, my God. Uh, well, look, he went to nine Pro Bowls, and he was first team All-Pro a couple times and second team, I think, four times. So, obviously, he's a very good player. Uh, pretty strong credentials there. Uh, Having said that, he wasn't voted all decade for the 2000s because all four guys who were are in the Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. Now, so my first question would be, was there five Hall of Fame tackles playing in that decade? I mean, seems unlikely, Apparently. but maybe. <laughs> I, I don't know. You know, we'll, we'll see. maybe you'll make the 2010 uh, uh, era uh, all decade team. I think he's got a chance. But look, how many linemen do we have, Clark, backed up in the queue now? Four? Yeah, uh, yeah. We have we have three uh, in the top ten. They've just been sitting there. Yeah, I mean, is he better than Fanica or, or Hutchison in terms of credentials? I don't think so. Why? Yeah. Why? Yeah. So it won't be easy for him. He should not retire anytime soon. He should keep playing. Forget, forget about those guys. <laughs> Winston Hill and George Coons both went to eight Pro Bowls, and I don't recall ever labeling them future Hall of Famers. Neither <laughs> one's go. even been in the room to be discussed. And that was back when the Pro Bowl actually meant something. Right. Jimbo Covert, first team all decade selection left tackle, went 25 years without ever getting in the room as a finalist. Peters was not an all-decade selection, like Ron said, so slow down that Jason Peters train. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you, Goose, because as, as Ron also said, I mean, I know he's a six-time All-Pro, including twice as a first-teamer, but be honest with you, I mean, I really never thought I was looking at another, well, Jonathan Ogden or Walter Jones or Orlando Pace. You mentioned those guys, Ron, who are ahead of him and who got right. named to the Football Hall of Fame, and um, I, I don't see Jason Peters, Goose, in their category. I always thought he was good, not great. Am I wrong there? Well, well, Peters was not Ogden or Jones or Pace, but they were all high first-round picks. Mm-hmm. They entered the league with great expectations. Peters right. entered the NFL as an undrafted college free agent, so there was an early perception that he wasn't much of a player, and that tends to shade a player's career. You know, Maybe he was on a par with Ogden or Pace, but our early perceptions of him will not let us put him there. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, I think Goose raises a good point, and uh, as an aside, uh in my uh, not-so-humble opinion, uh, Walter Jones is better than all of them. <laughs> Walter Jones, in my opinion, was the best guy in that time period. Was he Walter Jones? No. So, okay, we'll go. That doesn't mean you're not a Hall of Famer. just means you're not Walter Jones. We'll go from there, you know. Uh, uh, but with offensive linemen, don't you think a lot of times perception becomes reality? Uh, like Goose said, you know, these guys are number one picks. They play well, and the perception is they're better than uh, uh, a guy like uh Peters, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think uh, maybe if he makes all decade uh, for the next 10 years, um, maybe that changes things a little bit. You know, I, I don't think so. Um, but I think it's going to be hard for him. Look, they went to the Super Bowl without him. Yeah, no that's right. Respect, right. But they went to the Super Bowl without him. You know, so. Hey, Ron, quick question for you. Yes, sir. When have your opinions ever been not so humble? <laughs> that's a new thing. <laughs> Be it ever so humble. I was you're, working, you're working on that. Yeah, yeah. I read Uncle Tom's cabin. You'll be it ever so humble. And I'm, I'm humble, go. humble. Okay. Um, well, we can wait a few years before we take up uh, the Jason Peters conversation again. In the meantime, uh, your biggest takeaways from week one, other than, Ron, I'll start with you, that Aaron Rodgers legitimately is a, and, and Ron, if you can, plug Rick's ears, will you? Plug him. Future Hall of Famer. <laughs> first ballot. Okay, is there anything before first ballot? Because that's it. Uh, 
uh, you know, acclamation. Uh, yeah, Khalil Mack is a lot better at his job than John Gruden is at his job, who traded him to the Bears uh, the week before the season began. Mack had a pick six, a sack, a forced fumble, two sacks rather, a forced fumble, a fumble recovery uh, for the Bears. Uh, you know, he, he looked like, uh, uh, you know, Dick Butkus on steroids, which he may be for all I know. But he was sure after, after one week of practice. After one yeah. week of practice. Yeah, well, uh, how much practice do you need? There's the quarterback. Go kill him. That's all. That's his job. You know? <laughs> one week, uh, yeah. You know, I mean, George Gruden coaches a Raider team that got poleaxed by the Rams on national television. And meanwhile, Khalil Mack is over there, you know, playing like the best defensive player in the league, which he may very well be. My biggest takeaway is that if the Detroit Lions hired Matt Patricia for his defensive prowess, they have a problem. <laughs> Even though the Patriots reached the Super Bowl last season, New England finished 29th in the NFL in defense, yep. and it looks like Patricia brought that motley crew with him to Detroit. The Jets, with a rookie quarterback, trashed the Lions on the road. Hey, I've always believed that if you're going to hire any coach out of the New England building, it has to be Belichick. He's the brains of the operation. He Don't you get that go pencil. knocking Sam Darnold. He couldn't get that number two lead pencil out of his ear. That was, uh, <laughs> That's right. That uh, hey, Goose, biggest surprise? Ryan Fitzpatrick. It took him. What? <laughs> it took him seven NFL teams, but it looked like he finally found a home in Tampa. 400 yards, four touchdowns on the road at New Orleans. Are we looking? At a first ballot Hall of Famer? <laughs> we, yeah, we might. Harvard, QB like controversy. It. Amish Ronnie, rifle. <laughs> biggest disappointment, Ron? Uh, Jimmy G threw three picks. Only completed 45.5% of his throws against a very good and aggressive Viking defense. Uh, that ends his 7-0 record as a starter. Um, uh, but if he keeps going like this, uh, Patriot fans will now, instead of saying, you know, Belichick didn't know what he's doing, now they're going to say, what a smart guy, Belichick. He knew he was no good all along, and he got a stack up <laughs> Genius. Genius. First ballot Hall of Famer. First. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, really. He didn't look like one, did he? He looked yeah. uh, confused. Well, I know who's a genius in this room, and it's you, Ron. Yeah, today it's you. That's the signal that it's time to hear about someone who can make a case for Canton. And that someone, Ron, is you. So make your case well, for a running back who's piled up a lot of yards. That's Frank Gore. You're right. I mean, normally I stay away from the active players in this thing, but I just found him his, his case fascinating as uh, it is. some reading on it. Um, he's a fascinating uh, test case for the dilemma posed by what I call the great compiler, because that's what he certainly is. Last Sunday, 35-year-old Frank Gore had a typical Frank Gore day. He averaged 6.8 yards a carry, rushed nine times for 61 yards in Miami's 27-20 win over the Titans. He played a key role in their first scoring drive. He was more than serviceable, but less than spectacular. And you could say the same of his career. Yet those 61 yards leave Frank Gore only 15 short of passing Hall of Famer Curtis Martin to become the fourth all-time leading rusher in NFL history. If only three guys ever ran for more yards than you did, shouldn't that make you a Hall of Famer in a rush, Gooseman? Perhaps, but consider the other side of the story. In 13 full seasons plus a game, he's amassed 14,087 rushing yards. My legs are tired of thinking about it. Uh, but he never once led the league in rushing. In fact, he's been top five only once. Is such a runner worthy of induction? Well, it depends on how you look at it. If you look at production, you'll find only one player in NFL history has had 1,200 or more yards from scrimmage 12 times, and his name's not Jerry Rice. That's because Frank Gore passed him last season. It's Gore who's done it 12 straight years. Now, on the flip side, to be honest, Clark, man, did you ever watch Frank Gore and think Hall of Famer? 
No. No. <laughs> but of all the backs with 3,000 or more carries, only Barry Sanders and Walter Payton have averaged more than his 4.4 yards a carry. The top four rushes of all time ahead of Gore, and eight of the next ten behind him are Hall of Famous. Ranked 10th is Adrian Peterson. Everybody says he's a lock. So how come he's a lock, but Gore's not, when he did a lot more? He failed to make the 2000s All-Decade team. He was beaten out by Hall of Famer LaDainian Thomason, Edgar James, Sean Alexander, and Jamal Lewis. Okay, I'll give you Thomason and Lewis. Well, what the other guy, two guys do? I'll tell you what they did. They had a signature season. 2003, Jamal Lewis rushed for 2,006 yards, and he was a league MVP. Two years later, Alexander led the NFL with 1,880 rushing yards, 27 rushing touchdowns, MVP. They had one shining moment. Frank Gore, he's a reliable, productive employee no one notices until a month after he retires. Maybe the Hall will notice him. Ron, I think you just discovered their campaign slogan. Gore did more. Gore did more. Gore did more. I like it. He did more. And you know what we're going to do? We're going to break. (laughs) When we return, it's a look back at the good, the bad, and the Cleveland Browns from week one. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Hey, Ronnie, I know you're coaching your son's hockey team this year, right? Correct? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So that would make you a rookie head coach. Also correct? Indeed. Okay. Well, here's some advice for you. Beware what you wish for. Because rookie head coaches in the NFL, not the NHL or your son's league, are 0-7. and seven, And we're outscored a combined 210 to 117 in their debuts, including that 33-13 to 13 loss by Chicago's favorite adopted son. That would be Mr. John Gruden in Oakland. You know, the Lions fired Jim Caldwell after a 9-7 season and replaced him with New England's defensive wizard, Matt Patricia. After watching the lowly Jets and the rookie quarterback destroy the Lions and Patricia's defense one night, I'd venture to say it could be quite some time before Mr. Patricia gets his franchise back to nine wins. Ron, that's the second time he's mentioned the Lions and Matt Patricia in, the, in three segments. I, here. I think I, that really stung him. I, I, you know, after watching the uh, the Spartans go down, and now he sees the Lions go down. It was just <laughs> this next one, thing you know, the auto industry is going down. <laughs> this one's bugging him. Hey, uh, Ron, uh, speaking of bugging, I, I thought, um, you know, Mr. Gruden, the Chucky, or whatever they call him, was supposed to energize that offense and turn Derek Carr into the second coming of Rich Gannon. So I'm going to ask you if this bugs you, because the Raiders had one touchdown on Monday night, but it wasn't thrown by Derek Carr. Scored by Marshawn Lynch, and three or four or five, six teammates pushing and carrying him in the end zone. It's amazing how they do it. Let's just push him in the end zone. Um, but Derek Carr, no TDs, three interceptions, and a 62.8 passer rating. Ron, that doesn't exactly sound like a step forward. No, Chucky came in and he transformed Derek Carr into Jamarcus Russell. That's unbelievable. <laughs> hard to do. <laughs> Look, Carr, Carr, here was the problem. You know, Derek Carr was still trying to figure out why that money he left behind for Khalil Mack never got to him. <laughs> <laughs> and while he was wondering about that, he was not wondering about the Los Angeles Rams. He started thinking, maybe we're playing the Chargers. Watch the wrong film. Chucky strikes. I mean, that was bad. It's got to get better. That was bad. Oh, that was bad. Oh, um, oh. And, and, Goose, hey, let's forget about Carr for a second here if we can. Um, and that's easy to do, depending watching his uh, performance the other night. But the Raiders had no pass rush either. Forget the quarterback. They had no pass rush. And normally I wouldn't make a big deal of that, except, except normally you don't give away your best pass rusher. <laughs> That's okay. No Khalil 
Mac, no problem. John Gruden is an offensive genius, and I'm sure he believes his genius. offense will score enough points every Sunday that he won't have to worry about his pass rush or his defense. Right now, I'm sure he's thinking 15-1. and one. <laughs> Genius. <laughs> the genius of John Gruden. Okay, so bottom line here, guys. Uh, of the seven new head coaches... Who looked the most overmatching? And, and I know Goose is going to mention. So, Ron, I'll start with you. <laughs> well, I was going to be. I'm going to beat Goose Man partially to it. He's I'm, I'm, uh, he's right about Matt uh, Patricia. He managed to turn a nine and seven team with a top five quarterback into the 2017 Cleveland Browns in one fell <laughs> yeah. swoop. But I just want to share a little because you know me, stat maven that I am. Uh, I wanted to share one stat with you. Uh, he's really only following in the well trod footsteps of all uh, his predecessors from the Bill. Belichick coaching shrub. <laughs> Bill Parcells has been there assistance to one of uh, uh, four different four Super Bowls, I believe. Belichick's disciples, they're combined 99 and 154 as NFL head coaches, a winning percentage of 39%. Goose man, you got what you bought there in Detroit. Loser. <laughs> when, when Matt Patricia looks over his shoulder, Bill Belichick isn't there for any answers. It's going to be a long fall in Motown. Yeah, yeah, I guess I'll make this a clean sweep. I, I'm voting for Patricia, too. I mean, it really seemed as if he was looking for, or still looking around for Malcolm Butler. Where is he? I need him. Where is he? He had no idea what was going down in front of him. And what was going down was the entire team. But, Goose, I, I'll be honest with you. When, when I hear people talk about, you know, the Patriots way and going for the Patriots way, you know, I don't care what coach you hire. If you don't bring Tom Brady with you, you don't got the Patriots way. Brady and Belichick, Charlie Weiss, Romeo Cornell, Eric Mangini, Josh McDaniels, and now Matt Patricia. The only rings they own have the word Patriots inscribed on them. Yeah, and, and Ron, it, it does honestly reminds me of uh, years ago when I was covering the 49ers, and they wanted the 49ers way, and so they would hire Marty Morningwag, and they had Steve Mariucci go, wait a second, guys, if you don't have Steve Young or before that Joe Montana, Jerry Rice, you don't have, that's not the 49ers way. You can hire anyone you want. Ain't working. No, you're exactly right. It's the quarterback way. You know, and if, you, if you've got that special guy. On, uh, on Sunday, you know, if, if you got that special guy, then you're very smart. If you don't, then you better be smart, because if you're not, everyone's going to know it in a hurry. Rocket scientists, yeah. Matt Patricia may be, but I'm not sure those rockets got off the launching pad. Any suggestions, Ron? Leading question here, but any suggestions what you would tell him to do with that pencil? <laughs> There's certain places you can put it. It's a little uncomfortable to sit on it, but, you know, give it a try, because it ain't doing you any good behind your ear, brother. <laughs> Go. Shave okay, the beard, well, too, please. Uh, let's move on to another no-show last weekend, and that was Pittsburgh running back and former Spartan, Le'Veon Bell. Now, he sacrificed 850 Gs by not appearing in the Steelers' opener, and the guy replaced him, that'd be James Conner, uh, not only earned 34000 but was the star. He had uh, 192 yards in total offense, including 135 rushing, but the star in an otherwise... I think lackluster and really error-filled performance by the Steelers. He had six turnovers, um, who honestly were, frankly, they, 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 they were lucky they didn't lose. Um, so, Goose, what happens when Le'Veon Bell comes back? Because at some point he's coming back. I mean, what do you do with James Conner? Uh, I mean, you saw how his teammates responded to his touchdowns. Um, what do you do with the guy when Le'Veon Bell comes back? You know, welcome Bell back, give him a week to get into playing shape, and then put him on the field. He's the most complete back in the NFL. He'll give the... Steelers, all that Connor gives them in the running game and double what Connor gives them in the passing game. Connor is an outlet option in the passing game. Bell is a threat in the passing game. That's the difference. The game is played with the football in the air, and that's where Bell has a decided edge over Connor. Okay, full disclosure, Le'Veon Bell went to the same school as our Rick Gosselin. Another Spartan uh, who didn't show up last weekend. <laughs> <Le'Veon Bell. laughs> 
Well, Ron, I mean, um, clearly the Steelers, he's right. I mean, the Steelers are a better team with Le'Veon Bell. Right. Um, but it would have been hard for him to improve on that afternoon of, of James Conner. I mean, he was terrific. Although, I mean, let's be honest here. He did have a second uh, half fumble. It was a costly one. But, of course, he fit right in there because I was more the rule than the exceptions. I said the Steelers had six turnovers. And they still didn't lose, which is remarkable, except when you consider they were playing the Cleveland Browns. I guess that happens. Right. Well, you know, I, I did go back and, uh, believe it or not, as usual, my life's about, I watched a little uh, tape, actually, of that game. And uh, one of the things that, that I felt was going on uh, was that because Le'Veon Bell wasn't there, uh, if you look at what Cleveland did defensively, they were dropping a lot more guys in covers than they would have mm-hmm. if, if Bell was there. And I think that led to those those three picks uh, and Roethlisberger's tough day. You, you know, they would not have done that uh, with Bell up there because he was much more of an explosive threat. Now, maybe if this kid keeps doing what he did in the first game, maybe after a while that's going to change. But uh, I think that, to me, was a big difference maker in that game. Yeah, he was a productive runner, uh, but he couldn't get uh, Cleveland out of that secondary and force those linebackers to come in closer to the line of scrimmage. They, they were willing to take a chance with them, which they would not have taken uh, with Rick's favorite running back. Well, since you mentioned the Browns, Ron, what do you make of them? I mean, they're losing streaks over, but they should have won that game. Well, yes and no. I mean, look, they, I mean, you're, certainly they could have. I mean, uh, uh, but look, they, they needed a good comeback in the fourth quarter to tie the game, which they did. Uh, they were disruptive on defense. Um, they just have to learn how to win. And frankly, uh, when you're four and forty-four over the last four seasons, that's a little easier said than done. You know, just not losing felt like a win uh, for them. And now maybe this next week they're going to say, "Oh, okay." Now, uh, you know, this is the first time. Uh, I think this is their best start since 2006, and they didn't win the game. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> you know, there, are, there are a lot of young key pieces in place, and the sooner I think they get Baker Mayfield at quarterback, the sooner they can tap in all that talent. Tyrod Taylor won't make mistakes, but Mayfield will make plays, and that's the difference. Right. Right. No, I, I agree with you. And, and, you know, I remember last week when we were talking about this, and I think it was in the two-minute drill, but um, you asked Goose, when would they win a game? And I remember saying it'd be September 20th or their first game against the Jets. First game, this is the only game this year against the Jets. And, Ron, you actually agreed with me. Um, of course. You said the Jets. But I'll be honest with you. After watching Sam Darnold play on Monday, I'd like to postpone that one week, if I could, to September 30th at Oakland Goose. <laughs> Greatness of the Raiders. Yeah, after sure. Watching- Just lose, baby. After watching the Amish rifle torch the Saints last week in New Orleans, maybe the Browns have a shot this week in the Crescent City. Whoa! Are you calling that one? You have to read my pick on Friday. <laughs> there you go. There, there you, you go. go. All right. He's a, he's a salesman at heart. You know? Yeah. Well, Ron, what do you think? Uh, well, look, don't you believe, Cloggy, that Chuck will rise up from the ashes? Chucky, that's what he does, right? He rises up from the ashes. He chokes somebody to death. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now, look, uh, maybe, you know, it would help, I believe. If John Gruden had the Cajones enough to take responsibility for for getting rid of Khalil Mack instead of still trying to convince people yeah. after the game that it was Mack's fault because he didn't want to be there. No, he didn't want to be there uh, at bargain basement prices. You know, for what he did in Chicago, he won't, man won't get paid for what he do, as my friend Daryl Dawkins used to say. And, uh, you know, right now Chucky getting paid for what he didn't do. And he yeah, better, no, that's right. He better pick up the pace uh, and well, in a hurry. Well, and, you know, Ron, the difference here is that um, Aaron Donald, he didn't show up for training camp. Um, Earl Thomas didn't show up. And Earl Thomas then showed up for the season. Aaron Donald got paid. Um, 
but they wouldn't pay Khalil Mack. Um, so the Rams, I, I do not get. Yeah, it. I don't either. I don't. I don't. Get Certain it. things you can see. Okay, this is you know, guys, guys way out of line, you know. Uh, but two years from now, maybe even less, that have been a, whatever they paid it would have been a bargain. Yeah. Hey, Gooseman, um, quickly, we've got less than a minute left here, but you mentioned Baker Mayfield earlier. When do you think he gets on the field? I think Taylor gets the first month of the season. And if he wins a couple games, he'll get an extension. If he loses, it's Baker time in October. How about you, Ron? Well, uh, I, I think you know me. I'm a Tyrod man. but uh, <laughs> You are a Tyrod man. I am a Tyrod man. love the guy. But uh, if he keeps going 15 for 40, he's going to blow a rod and a job. Uh, <laughs> you, know, you, you just you can't do that. Um, but I think he'll settle down and, and play a little bit. He did rush for 77 yards, too, by the way, uh, fellow. So he had a lot to do with them yeah. nearly winning. Well, guys, we're not going to go see uh, pass rusher Elvis Doomerville on the field anytime soon. And that's because, as you know, he retired two weeks ago, ending a career that included 105 and a half sacks. But guess what? He's here with us today, and you're going to hear from him right after this. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, early on this program, we were talking about Khalil Mack and the value of a great pass rusher. Well, we have a great pass rusher with us today. I'm talking about Elvis Dumerville, who set the record for sacks in his high school. That would be Miami Jackson with 78 in his career. Then set the NCAA single-season record for sacks and forced fumbles when he was at the University of Louisville. He had 20 and a half sacks and 10 forced fumbles. And who in 2014 set a Baltimore Ravens single-season record with 17 sacks. I think you get the idea. Great pass rusher, Elvis Dumerville. But Elvis announced his retirement from the game last month, and we are lucky, very lucky to have him with us today. Elvis Dumerville, thanks so much for joining us oh man thank you that's a great introduction <laughs> well you did most of it yourself <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> thanks for writing it for me elvis uh, listen um elvis your, your numbers speak for themselves and i i didn't even mention the 105 and a half career sacks and 23 forced fumbles you had in the nfl so my question to you is what makes a great pass rusher and, and how much of it is technique and how much of it is just raw ability um, I mean, you know, I think every every pass rusher has his own niche. Um, it, to me, it's, it's kind of like uh, you know the weather. You know, every weather has its pros and cons. And and for me, you know, my leverage it was a I guess in a certain, some some parts during the drive was a bad thing, but on the field playing with leverage was a great thing. You know, so it's it's a matter of taking what you have, your tools, and what your God given ability, and and making it the best of your ability and playing your cards. You know. Yeah, right. Well, um, we've had great pass rushers on this program before, and some of them have told us that, but they also have told us um, they value tackles for losses over sacks. Just wondering how. <laughs> no, no, getting the quarterback is, is more than anything. Getting the ball out even more special. Uh, so you're, you're forced fumbles, you, do you consider forced fumbles a bigger stat than sacks? Yeah, you get the ball out, you know, it's, it's a sack fumble. I mean, you know, so it's, 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 the, it's the best of the best. You know, you don't even have to bring the quarterback down. You go for the ball, get a sack, and you get a fumble, so you get two on the, on the stat sheet. <laughs> Elvis, let me take you back a little bit here. How does a guy, a high school star from Miami, end up at Louisville? Why did you go to the U? 
Man, in lieu of ACC, baby. You know, big time school. In all seriousness, I mean, when I came into high school, conference was A. Um, and honestly, you know, first generation from Haiti, I really I didn't have parents who really understood the whole college process. And I look back, and my mom keeps all the letters and, and scholarship offers. I had scholarship offers from LSU and SEC schools. And I mean, it was crazy, but I didn't know. You know, I didn't really, Michigan, I didn't really understand that. Miami recruited me. They wanted me to play fullback, so I declined that. Um, you know, Florida State, they never really, Bobby Brown actually came down to my high school and he told me I was too short. <laughs> he's like, you're good. He's like you're good. You're, son, you're a good player, but uh, you're just a little too short for us, you know. So that was I, I can I can appreciate the honesty, and uh, and I was actually going to go to Florida and see Spirit. See uh, Spirit ended up going to the Redskins that year, and then Ron Zook came in, and so at that point I had brothers in Syracuse, I had brothers in Louisville, and at, at that point I just went with family, you know, and and I really didn't understand the whole college recruiting process. So, I mean, so, I mean, but the thing is, the best decision I've ever made, Louisville was a great, great experience. Got out of Miami, went to Kentucky, you know what to expect. It was a great college town, man. I tell you, it was a great place to play at. Um, a lot of friends and relationships built there, prepared me to uh, to meet with Coach Petrino, helped me to, you know, prepare myself for the NFL, playing in a different climate environment. It was all good. So when I went to Denver, at least I had, experience some type of snow and, you know, those type of things. Okay. Bobby Bowden said you're too short. The NFL clearly thought you were too short, which is why with all your stats, you slid to the fourth round. Has your height ever been a disadvantage? I know. I think like I mentioned earlier, I think leverage is, is the key to it all. You know, I'm going against guys who six seven. The taller you are, the bigger you are, was the better. It was the best, you know, and you play with leverage and my arm length, Helped me, it helped me as well. My arm, you know, was just, just the tallest, I mean, longest guys who were taller than me. So, had long arms and leverage. So, I was kind of really built to, to rush the passer. Hmm. Well, as you know, all three of us are Hall of Fame uh, uh, voters, uh, Elvis, and, and the Hall love his pass rushes. We all love pass rushes. Uh, and since you entered the league, there's only three guys, Demarcus Ware, uh, Jared Allen, and Julius Peppers, who have more sacks or had more sacks than you. Uh, do you think much about the Hall of Fame? Uh, you know, we had Brett Favre on the show uh, before he got in. He told us that uh, it never, was never really something he thought about. He just played football. Um, have you ever thought much about it, and how meaningful would it be to you uh, to get one of those gold jackets? Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're right. I mean, you never really think about it. You just play the game. You love it. You feel like, oh, man, I'm pretty cool. I got a scholarship, and then you get drafted, and um, and you, you just have passion. You love the, the crowd energy. I mean, for me, speaking of my personal experience, um, I, you know, I, I enjoy Sundays, you know. I enjoy being with the guys. And, and, and one thing I always enjoy about NFL and football is every week get an opportunity um, to correct or get better. And and to me, that I thought that was a you know one of the coolest things because in life you never know what happens and how you respond. And, and every week you had that that experiment of how do you respond the next week. And last week doesn't matter; it's the new week. And you know, so you know you don't you know you're so busy and you think about trying to help the team. And you you don't even get caught up into those accolades and, and you know Hall of Fame stuff. You just kind of. You try to worry about today and, and worry about the week and worry about the game and the season, and then you you then you don't have time. You got to worry about the next season. So you just there's always something you got to work on, 
And when you look up, and now it's like, man, 12 years has gone by. And you start to see kind of – I never really, you know, sat and thought about what happened and how I did it, you know, which is always trying to look forward and push forward, keep pushing. That's one of my things I like to do. I like to keep pushing. And and then, you know, now being retired, I mean, I'm still in that same habit, but now I can, like, have conversations or interviews with you guys and reflect on certain things, a couple of things that you've done. Um, and it's really a new experience, experience for me, and this is the first time I actually – can dwell or even think about things like that I've done in the past, you know? Mm-hmm. But like you say, this was the first uh, weekend since, I don't know how old you were when you first started playing uh, football, but I imagine this was the first mm-hmm. fall weekend in, <laughs> in a long time you haven't played football. When you got up on Sunday, did you, like, run around the living room and knock over the tables and you know, <laughs> sack the sofa, <laughs> dive over the top of somebody and tackle your friends? Uh, what, what was yeah. it like not playing football when you've been doing it for so long? Yeah, it was. I mean, it was cool, man. Just had had a nice brunch with my family, wife, two kids. I have a daughter, two years old. Um, and you know, she, she, you know, it's funny. Every time she sees a football and in sports, you know, she just go, daddy, go. You know, and she, <laughs> and she, she remember. You know, it's funny. She remembers the time in San Fran, and uh, so every time she sees any red or football, you know, she she connects that with daddy. Um, but now, man, just hang with the wife, man, and show the family. And um, you know, it's it's been great, man. It's is uh, like you said, I've been playing football since organized football since sixth grade, first grade, and um, it's just it's crazy, man. You just <laughs> you wake up and you're like, man, you don't have the meetings. It's, it's for me, it's more than the Saturdays. Because Saturdays where you kind of you, you you get in your mode of your routine and getting ready for the game, and and so when the day the game is easy, but Saturday for me was the hardest part because you don't have the hotel meeting, hearing from your coach, uh, the team meeting the night before, sleeping at the hotel. So that 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 where I kind of felt like, oh man, I'm not going to the hotel. My wife is not packing my bag, and <laughs> I'm not leaving. You know, so that was that was that part. Well, Elvis, you, you talked about how much you enjoyed Sundays and being with the guys and how every weekend was an experiment and, and looking forward to the next week and see what you can improve on. What convinced you that now was the time to retire? Why now? Um, you know, because you, 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 you know, you think about you have kids, you know. Uh, that's no reason. I, I wanted to have kids later because I knew, like, if you have kids, I, I miss them. And going away on the weekends is tough. And uh, especially being on the West Coast last year, you know, had East Coast games, we had to leave two days before. And, it's, you know, with the, the fire of playing football, I think, will always remain. You know, I don't think I'll ever lose that part of competitiveness. Uh, you know, my body's great. I mean, actually, I, I feel like I can still help a team win and play. Um, but for me, it was more, you know, enjoying the off season and spending time with my kids. You know, that's kind of where I just felt like um, – it, it, it all depends on the right situation, and I didn't think the right situation, the teams that I was talking to, um, it wasn't the teams that I felt it was a good match for, for both sides. Um, I declined a few, um, you know, visits because I didn't, you know, I didn't feel it was the right fit. And for me, I, I never played this game just to just just to be a tag along, and, and you know, I, I respect the game too much. Um, and if I feel like I can't be who I am in a way I want to be, um, you know, contributing. It just wouldn't make sense to me. Elvis, we all know what happened uh, with, with Denver and Baltimore that one season of the contract uh, screw up here. Did going to Baltimore benefit your career, or if you had your druthers, would you have preferred staying in Denver the whole thing? I think it's, it's, it's two. It's, it's, I think it helped, and it, it was kind of I wish I would have 
you know, probably had an opportunity to do that the whole time. I think when I went to Baltimore, it helped me to become a better professional because I think I didn't play with Ray Lewis or those guys, but being there when I came, I think the atmosphere, the, the system was in place of how to really be a true pro and take care of your body. And I think when I got to Baltimore, because my last three years in Denver, I was hurt every year. I was never, I was never healthy in the last three years there. After I tore my, after I led the team, the league in sacks there, you know, uh, I tore my pecs. And after that injury, I just didn't have the resource or the knowledge of, okay, how do I get back healthy to where I can perform to where I want to perform? And in Denver, I didn't have that, you know. Um, so I, I, I really saw I needed to get a change of scenery. And when that happened, Baltimore was a bit perfect place for me. I think help rejuvenate my um, my health for sure. And I actually, you know, I wanted to be in the three four system too because when I when I signed my contract and let the team let the league inside, I was at an outside linebacker. And then McDaniel got fired after the year I got hurt. Then they brought in Coach Fox and they moved me back to the end. You know, I can't complain. You know, you got to do what you got to do. But I I would prefer to stay an outside linebacker. Um, but you know, you got to do what you got to do. You're in the contract. So when I got to Baltimore, I was able to go back to outside linebacker. That's when I was able to get a franchise record there. And um, that was those opportunities. Now the flip side of it, you know, obviously you missed on the Super Bowl run with Denver. Um, and I wish I could have played. Because I really enjoy playing the guys there and the teammates, guys like Vaughn, and I never, I was never healthy with Vaughn. Like I, I, you know, I always wondered, like, man, we would both have been healthy. And Vaughn was younger then, so as he was matured and got into where he's at now, and I would have been healthy. I mean, I mean, we, you know, we was the number one tandem together when we, you know, we went to a different route. But you know, I, I just think it was, there was a lot of potential there that never really got tapped into. Oh, one last thing, uh, uh, Ellis. We got about a minute to go in. Just wondering, uh, you've sacked a lot of guys, a lot of different guys, uh, great quarterbacks, guys that time has forgotten. Who was the toughest quarterback to get onto the ground? I would say, man, you know, in the days when I was in Denver, Ben, ben Roethlisberger for sure was. Um, that's when he was, you know, he had his big jersey, he was heavier. <laughs> I mean, the guy can just shake people off. It, it was crazy, man. Like to me. He, and then he was so big, and then he wore then he wore a big jersey. So when you pull him on the jersey, you keep stretching. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean the guy. I mean, I watch I watch the games down. I see Ben. And he just takes the sack. I'm like, man, it's just, man, it's crazy. But I think Ben was the, the toughest guy. I think in his uh, his mobile days for sure. The sack. Hey Elvis, we got to run here, but thanks so much for joining us, and we look forward to catching up with you again, hopefully soon. Okay, thank you guys. Appreciate thanks, it. Elvis. You got it. That was former Denver Baltimore and San Francisco pass rusher Elmas Dumerfeld. Up next, the two-minute drill. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, if you've been listening to this program, you know what to expect next. That's the two-minute warning. That's right. It's the two-minute drill, and I'm running it this week. So, gentlemen, start your engines. Dallas Cowboys were the first team to enter into a Windstar Casino partnership. So who will be the second? The Raiders. They will be a multi-casino partnership. <laughs> Bob Kraft, he's always nipping at Jerry Jones's heels. Kirk Cousins is seeking a trademark for you Vike that? That's right, you Vike that. So what trademark should Aaron Rodgers get? You Vike this even more. <laughs> My knee, she fine. <laughs> Which NFL team can least afford to start 0-2? 
Texans, they lose at Tennessee Sunday and fall two games back. The Jaguars, the AFC South is over. I'd say all of them. Since 2007, there have been 83 teams that start 0-2 and just nine turned the season around and made the postseason. Go 0-2, I don't like your chances. Listen to you, son of Dr. Dad. Wow. <laughs> Don Brady says he wants to play five more years. What are the chances? There's a better chance we're still doing this show in five more years. <laughs> <laughs> we can only hope, Guzman. Uh, I'd say it's pretty good unless he wants to play those years in New England. <laughs> Tyreek Hill, Winston Hill, or Ben Hill? Hill Street Blues. Oh, oh, good one. Harlan Hill. He'd make Tariq look like he was running in cement. A.J. Green says Joe Mixon is on par with Todd Gurley and Le'Veon Bell. Who would you compare him to? Let's wait until he gets his second career 100-yard rushing game before we brand him as anything, <laughs> much less a first ballot Hall of Famer. Joe Mixon? Richard Dixon. They both got pardoned for bad behavior. Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel won't run for re-election. So why shouldn't John Gruden, after what he's done for the Bears with Khalil Mack? Because it's better to be king in Las Vegas than mayor in Chicago. <laughs> he should, actually. He's got a better chance of winning a Chicago election than one in Oakland. Tampa Bay coach Dirk Cutters calls Ryan Fitzpatrick Ryan Fitzmagic. What do you call him? A journeyman. What? <laughs> the Amish rifle, loaded and ready. How do you explain Adrian Peterson's resurrection? One Sunday does not a season make. The guy's reading over my shoulder. One game does not a resurrection make either, Gooseman. That's the end of the Well, that's the end of our first hour, but stay where you are. We have the best New York Jets, not in Canton, our fearless predictions for the season, and Houston wide receiver Vincent Smith coming up in the second hour. So don't go away. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to our number two of the Talk of Fame Network. And in this hour, we'll be speaking with Houston wide receiver Vincent Smith, as well as ESPN's Rich Smini for his take on the best New York Jets not in Canton. And we'll unveil our 2018 fearless predictions, too. But because we are a Hall of Fame program, guys, I want to acknowledge a friend of the show and someone we've spoken about more than once recently, and that's Hall of Fame quarterback Jim Kelly. As most of you know, he's been battling oral cancer and has undergone several difficult surgeries. But I saw an Instagram photo within the past week where his wife celebrated his latest recovery, as well she should, with dentures inserted as part of his jaw reconstruction. Now, Ron, um, you saw a lot of this guy in the AFC East, some twice a year. What's so remarkable about him to me is that he never quits on or off the football field. I mean, bottom line, to me, he really is the embodiment of this Kelly Strong idea. Well, you're right, uh, Clark. He was always a linebacker locked inside a quarterback's body. You know, Joe Paterno recruited him to play linebacker, uh, and right. that's how he ended up in Miami because he was stubborn even then, and he wanted to play a quarterback, and he believed he could. And so the first game he started, what did he do? Beat Joe Paterno's Penn State pants off. So there you go. That's, a, that's who he is. You know, he's a fighter. And now he's been fighting cancer for quite a while. You know, it's how he took f- – four straight teams to the Super Bowl despite all those disappointments. You know, he uh, he is able to control his mind and just concentrate on, on, on what he needs to do. And now he's going through a... Yeah, well, Goose, I'll be honest with you. I mean, I thought this guy was a damn good quarterback, and he was. But as Ron said, 
he's a fighter. And I think what he's doing now and the odds that he continues to overcome, uh, it's really greater than anything I witnessed on the football field. Yeah, I agree with Ron. This guy played quarterback with the grit of a linebacker, and he's tackling cancer with that same grit. Mentally, yeah. physically, this guy is the embodiment of a linebacker. Well, you know, at some point, guys, I would think the people of Western New York would demand the Bills recognize him with, I don't know, something. Statue outside the stadium, a street named in his honor, something. Um, you have any ideas, Goose? Three statues. One in Miami for his days with the Hurricanes, one in Houston for his days with the USFL Gamblers, and one in Buffalo for those Bills teams. Yeah, I like the statues of great players in front of stadiums. Uh, and I know one thing about uh, Jim Kelly. He'd only ask for one thing. Just make my statue in Buffalo just a little bit taller than my friend Dan Marino's in Mike. <laughs> yeah. Well, guys, if they can name a street in Green Bay after Mike McCarthy, you think they could do something similar for this guy because he deserves it. Anyway, keep fighting, Jim. Got a lot of people in your corner. And we have a producer in my ear right now telling me we've got to go to commercial, so we will. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Before we get to our 2018 fearless predictions, I want to remind our listeners what Ron said on last week's program, Goose, and that was if you had the first pick of your fantasy football draft, you should take not Todd Gurley, but Leonard Fournette. Well, guess what? Todd Gurley scored, and Leonard Fournette did not. In fact, he didn't make it through his first game. Bad out with a hamstring injury. So, Ron, quick question here for all to hear. Do you want to issue a formal apology to your fantasy football followers? Absolutely not. It was Khalil Mack's fault. He distracted me. You know, it's, it's like with, look, if Leonard, if Leonard hadn't been injured, he likely would have rushed for 185 yards and three yes, touchdowns, sir. one of which would have been for at least 58 yards, which is a lot of fantasy points. Ride the F train. Mark, like I hear so much stirring that Tom Coughlin Kool-Aid. <laughs> you too. Hey, Gooseman, speaking of messages, uh, you have anyone for those Michigan State alums who took Le'Veon Bell, not Todd Gurley or Leonard Fournette, with their first fantasy football pick? Sure, until he walks in the Steelers' facility, don't play him. But when he gets in the building, <laughs> play him. <laughs> Sound advice from Dr. Data, as always. Okay, well, it's a long season, which is why I have Ron and Goose here to talk about what's ahead. And it has nothing to do with Leonard Fournette. Uh, Le'Veon Bell or fantasy football, but maybe a little bit Le'Veon Bell. Not directly, it doesn't. But it does have to do with what they see in the future. And hopefully, guys, you're consulting something or someone other than whom or what Cleveland's Jarvis Landry is because uh, he's the guy who says the Browns can win the Super Bowl this year if they live up to their potential. That would be honest, Ron. I don't make them up. <laughs> well, look, the fact is, at the moment, they're as undefeated as anybody else. Are they not? <laughs> they are. They are. You know, so, look, they played a game and they're still undefeated. So there you go. Uh, you know, the, matter of fact, they, they, they performed a feat not achieved since, I believe, 1970. Uh, they finished the season over with a come-from-behind tie. When you go in 16 and you tie somebody, that's like, not like uh, kissing your sister. That's like kissing Halle Berry. You are a happy guy. <laughs> But they're not so happy. Browns. Not so happy in Cleveland, Ron, because those fridges are still locked. <laughs> they're still locked. No <laughs> yeah, free beer. True. No free beer. <laughs> okay, uh, I want to see how you guys see this league shaping up after one week, and let's start at the top. Uh, we ran a poll on league MVP. I think it was a week ago, and our readers voted overwhelmingly for Aaron Rodgers. Then after Saturday night or Sunday night, 
So the Chicago Bears. Yeah, Aaron Rodgers put him in. Um, so tell me, guys, whom you like for this year's MVP and why. Goose, start with I, you. I liked Aaron Rodgers in July when the Packers reported to camp. I liked him in August when they started the exhibition schedule. I liked him in September when the season opened. I liked him after watching him work his magic last Sunday night. He is the best quarterback in football, the most valuable commodity in the game. He's your annual front runner for MVP. Uh, I have to Ron, agree with. Uh, I have to agree with Gooseman on this one. Look, if, if he doesn't play this week, we'll have a better handle on just how uh, uh, valuable he really is to the Packers. Although, if you watched uh, the last, uh, the the second quarter uh, of their game, uh, you realize just how valuable he is. Which is, they can't win a quarter, let alone a game without him. So, I would say that uh, he is the MVP. Um, guys, who's the defending MVP? Defending MVP. He was, quarter, he was quarterback. It, it wasn't Aaron Rodgers. Uh, who is that? Uh, Ron? Ron? I don't know. Who is he? The guy who lost, is he the guy who fumbled the, the best ball? quarterback in the game. All right. The guy who lost Next up. Okay. Offensive MVP. Hey, Ron, who's drinking that Bob Kraft Kool-Aid? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm not drinking it. I'm drowning in it, guys. Um, <laughs> offensive MVP. Now, a year ago, it was the Rams' Todd Gurley, and he's off to a good start trying to defend that title. Ron, who you wouldn't have drafted with your first pick. <laughs> so whom do you have as offensive MVP? And, Ron, I'll start with you. And, uh, listeners, don't pay attention to what he's saying. He's going to take Leonard Fournette. <laughs> <laughs> well, if he wasn't hurt, it might be. But, look, uh, Tyreek. Hill, the Chiefs, he scored three times already in his first game. He had seven catches for 163 receiving yards. He averaged 24.1 yards a catch. That's a real receiver. Scored twice. Then he had two punt returns for another 95 yards, including a 91-yard touchdown return. That's 258 yards of total offense. Dangerous dude. I like Gurley. He was my offensive player of the year in 2017. He has a better cast around him this year. Defense will produce more takeaways, more stops. That translates into... More time in the field on the offense, more touches for Gurley, more touchdowns, greater productivity, a repeat winner. Uh, no James Conner? I guess not. Okay. How about defensive MVP? Chuck Conner. <laughs> Aaron Donald was the winner a year ago. Khalil Mack the year before that. I think J.J. Watt won our preseason readers poll. I'm not sure about that, Goose, you would know. But he was invisible. The Patriots defeated Houston last weekend. So, uh, Goose, who's your defensive MVP? I like Donald's teammate, cornerback Marcus Peters, ball hawk, Whoa. playmaker on a championship contender in a high-profile city like Los Angeles. He'll have far greater visibility than he did in Kansas City. <laughs> Ron, well, apparently he's not taking anyone on the Lions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, uh, two things. I actually uh, disagree a little bit with your position on on what? Uh, he had two hits on Brady in the second half. He pressured him uh, uh, quite a bit. He admitted after the game he had a hard time uh, uh initially, you know, because he had such a long layoff, and then he really didn't play in the preseason, so he was pretty rusty, but once he got that knocked off, uh, he played pretty well. But having said that, Khalil Mack, he's got a burr under his saddle, man, and that is dangerous for anybody who's facing him, uh, as the the Packers found out. I mean, he's got some serious motivation. Okay, how about Coach of the Year? Coach of the Year? Uh, Well, it won't be Matt Patricia. I'm pretty sure. Right now, i got to go with the Sean McVay. Look, I mean, he, he did a great job last year, and it looks like he's got that team just as ready to go this year. Goose, Mike Zimmer. it better not be Matt Patricia. Mike Zimmer, he's put together a special defense in Minnesota, and that's tough to do in today's NFL. That's coaching at its highest level. Okay, lastly, guys, who are your Super Bowl teams and your Super Bowl winner, Ronnie? Oh, my goodness. A little early for that, don't you think? Um, let's say, I, I guess I'll go with the Rammies and uh, – what the heck? I'll go with the uh, I'll go Patriots. With the, okay. Yeah, okay. I'll go with the <laughs> Patriots. Why not? Who's your Super Bowl winner? 
Patriots. Rams, no, Jaguars. not the Patriots. Rams, Jaguars, Rams one strength quarterback position. Wow, Jaguars on the Jaguars. He's drinking that Tom Coughlin Kool-Aid. Speaking of winners, this is Dr. Dad is in the house. That would be our answer man, Rick Goslin. With facts, figures, and frequencies, yes, to support his latest theory or law of the NFL. And today, Goose, you're going where? Officials. Did you enjoy oh. the opening weekend of the NFL season? Did you enjoy all those yellow flags? No, them. no. There were 255 of them. I've been charting penalties since 2007. And last weekend was the second highest amount of flags the NFL has seen in the last 12 years. Gentlemen, we're talking about 2,800 weekends of NFL football. And last weekend was number two. The much-anticipated Falcons-Eagles rematch kicked off the season, and the officials made their presence felt with 26 penalties for 236 yards. Last season, there was only one game of 24 or more penalties in 17 weekends covering 256 games. So we're already way ahead of last year's flag football pace. The Jackson Jaguars did not have a 100-penalty game all year on their way to the a- an AFC South title in the AFC Championship game. They were penalized 11 times for 119 yards by Craig Rollstadt's crew in the opener last weekend. Atlanta's worst penalty game a year ago was 91 yards. John Hussey's crew marched off 135 yards in penalties against the Falcons in that Philadelphia game. The Raiders have worked in recent years to reduce their penalties with Jack Del Rio as coach. Their worst game in 2017 was a 105-yard afternoon against Dallas. Now Del Rio is out and John Gruden is back in, and so are those old habits, Ron. The Raiders were penalized 11 times for 155 yards in Gruden's return to the sideline. In all, eight teams were assessed at least 10 penalties in games last weekend. Seven teams were assessed at least 100 yards in penalties. Last season, the average NFL game featured 13 penalties for 115 yards. Last weekend, it was 16 penalties for 141 yards. Gentlemen, brace for another long season where the officiating crews seem to think they are the attraction on Sunday afternoons, not the Packers, Patriots, or Steelers. So, Gooseman, they call these penalties. Uh, yet in the Patriots game, Corderell Patterson, a wide receiver, lowers his head and slams it into a Texans cornerback, Kevin Johnson, gives him a concussion, knocks him out of the game for this week and next week. No flag. What gives? It's all about the offense, Ron. <laughs> Trying to keep the, the, the people that haven't turned the TV off for the anthem that are watching, they want offense. The NFL gives it to them. Hey, sorry, guys, but I've got to throw a flag now. For delay of game, we got to go to break, which we're doing right now. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Our next guest is the holder of an NFL record that should not go unnoticed. That would be Rich Samini, and he's been covering the New York Jets since 1989. Making him the longest tenured beat writer in Jets history and the winner, yes, the winner of our Sisyphus Award. Congratulations, Rich. <laughs> Can pick that up. <laughs> anyway, yeah, Rich has been ESPN's Jets beat man since 2010. And prior to that, covered the Jets for the New York Daily News. He's been a regular here with us on the Talk of Fame Network, and we're bringing him back to get his take on whom the Jets believe are their most deserving players. Not, I said not, in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Rich, welcome back. Great to have you here. Great. Thanks for having me, guys. 
And Rich, let's lay down some ground rules before we get started. One, I'd like to point out, you cannot, you cannot, I said, begin by nominating Sam Darnold as your first Hall of Fame. Right? You got that? <laughs> oh, well, the, the conversation has to end right now. <laughs> <laughs> hey, boy, that, that, that was an impressive performance the other night. Did you see that coming? Uh, you know, I, I didn't see a pick six coming on his first throw. Uh, I don't think anybody anticipated that. But, you know... I watched him a lot in college, and I watched him all summer, and he does have a, a – he's kind of unflappable. You know, he's got a demeanor where he just – I don't know if it's Southern California thing, you know, a cool – it just – it just things just roll off his back. And so when he threw the pick six, you know, I, I didn't think he would go in the tank. And so if he didn't, he didn't pretty solid game. Well, the uh, uh, Hall of Fame Senior Committee this year, as you know, Rich uh... – uh, which Rick and I are both on. We nominated Winston Hill as one of this year's uh, Hall of Fame finalists. Bill Parcells, among others, has long been a booster of Winston's, uh, and many people feel he was the best tackle in AFL history. Uh, how deserving do you think he is, and why do you think he was overlooked for so long? Well, I mean, I think he's deserving. I, I don't know why he's overlooked, because, I mean, if you look at, you know, he made uh, double-digit uh, Pro Bowl and AFL All-Star games. Uh, I believe he holds the streak, you know, with the Jets' uh, durability streak. He was an Iron Man, played in, uh, you know, I can't remember, I think it was 14 consecutive seasons without missing a game. Um, there was one game, I, I recall, you know, I talked, I, I never really met Winston, but I've talked to a lot of members of those those teams in the 68 Jets who won the championship. And, you know, they said there was one game where he played with a broken leg and, you know, did a great job. And, of course, he started you know Super Bowl three, and I've said Joe Namath about him, and you know Namath swears by him. You know, just one of his bodyguards, one of his protectors, and I. You, you just and I agree with Bill Parcells. You just look at the record. I mean, how could a guy who started that many years in a row and didn't miss a game and just uh, excelled at the highest level in whichever league he was in, AFL, NFL. I think he definitely deserves strong consideration. And I look at it this way. If he were playing today, a player of that caliber, how much money would he be making being a left tackle? And, you know, what these guys are getting paid now is, is crazy. You know, for a left tackle to be at that level for that long, he'd be the highest paid left tackle in the league. So I, I think that right there shows you his qualifications. Rich, one interesting and controversial jet is Mark Gastineau. Although sacks were not an official stat until his fourth season, film shows he still had 107 and a half sacks in only 100 games, including 20 and 81, 19 and 83, and 22 and 1984. Three-time first-team All-Pro, five-time Pro Bowl selections, 84 AFC Defense Player of the Year. Yet he's seldom mentioned among the great pass rushers for the Hall. Why not? Uh, you know, it's a great question. He's kind of an enigma, and I did cover the tail end of his career. Uh, you know, unfortunately, you know, it wasn't a good ending, um, and I think that maybe contributed. He retired in the middle of the season. I think it was after the third game of the '88 season. He retired abruptly, and uh, so I think that was part of it. He didn't leave on a really good note, and I think if you polled. His teammates who played on those Jet teams probably more deserving of the Hall of Fame just because he was a, an all-around player, played different positions. He was a two-way. Joe played the run, whereas I think most people at the time, his teammates viewed Mark 
as a one-dimensional player, strictly an edge rusher. And look, but look, he was great at that. I mean, you look at the sack numbers, and and if they were counting sack numbers, he was the NFL Defensive Player of the Year. I mean, if you counted the sack, I mean, it would be crazy numbers. But you know, his personality—he was very much a me guy. I think that rubbed people the wrong way. He, he really invented the sack dance, which I know pissed off a lot of opponents. And uh, so I think those are some of the reasons why, you know, he's just a different kind of personality. He was a different cat. You know, it was just a different personality. And But as a pure pass rusher, yeah. But as an overall football player, I think he's probably borderline. How much money would he command in today's NFL as a pure pass <laughs> Well, yeah, it's like I said he's only good at one thing, but that one thing happens to be a pretty important thing. I mean, anybody <laughs> who can line up and, and get and get 15 sacks a year, and uh, we, you know, there'd be a premium for that. I mean, look at Khalil Mack, how much money he just got paid. Now, I think he's probably a better all-around player than Mark Astineau was. But, um, you know, Mark was just a, a self-centered guy, and, and he's not a mean I know him. He's not a bad guy, but he was very much about Mark. And I think that alienated a lot of teammates. And so that's probably why he's, as you referred to him, Goose, uh, as just kind of a controversial guy. Yeah. Rich, I want to ask you about Klecko since you mentioned him. Um, I wrote about him several years ago on our website, talkofhimnetwork.com, and sort of pushing him for the Hall of Fame. Uh, only player to make the Pro Bowl three different positions, um, and he didn't make it as a modern-era candidate. He's now in the senior pool. And he was on the list of 23 finalists who would discuss this year, but he didn't make it again. Uh, in your opinion, was Joe a Hall of Famer, or is he more like a, a Swiss Army knife of defensive lineman? Well... All of the above. I mean, we know, you know, the one stat that kind of follows him around, you know, the only guy to make, the only defensive lineman to make it at three different positions, uh, the Pro Bowl, uh, which is a pretty pretty nice feather in your cap. And, you know, I, I think he is. I might be a little biased, but I, I, I defer to the peers, you know, his peers. You know, I've seen Howie Long come out. And, and say Joe, you know, was one of the best ever in that era. I've seen uh, Delama Lure from the Bills come out and say he's one of the toughest guys he faced. Anthony Munoz has had made similar comments. So those are the guys who would know better than I would. And you know, I've I've seen and talked to guys who just rave about Joe's intensity and his work ethic and his hands. You know, he was a boxer. Uh, you know, in his collegiate career at Temple, and you know, I've heard stories, legendary stories of his how he used his hands, you know, his hand quickness, and and just how he translated that to football and really helped him. But uh, unfortunately, it was the knee injuries. You know, he just lost a lot of time in his career to devastating knee injuries, and that's probably why the committee, you know, hasn't put him in yet. I mean, he just lost some prime time in his career just to those devastating knee injuries. Well, one guy that I've always found uh, fascinating to debate is uh, Darrell Rivas. Uh, he went to seven Pro Bowls, was all pro four times. But the guy only had 29 career picks. Uh, normally 50 is kind of the uh, uh, line of demarcation, you know. Uh, how would you... Uh, view his Hall of Fame case, uh, and and how do you account for 29 career picks? Yeah, I, mean, I was aware of that stat, and uh, you're right. I mean, it, it, he doesn't have a lot of picks. So he is no question a Hall of Famer. Um, is he first ballot? You know, that'll 
be debated. I, you know, so much of that, as you guys know better than anyone, you know, it's depending on the competition in that particular year. I think Champ Bailey's up this year, if I'm not mistaken. So he'll be coming up for eligibility. And it'll be interesting to see how that goes because, um, you know, both – you know, dominant cornerbacks. Champ had a longer career. That's the one knock on Revis is that how many dominant seasons did he really have? I think from 2008 to 2012 when he blew out his knee, I think he was the best. And I'm not sure he ever got back to that level. You know, he won the championship with the Patriots, but I don't think he was the dominant shutdown corner that he was in 09 and 10. But I can tell you, in 2009 and 2010, I watched him every day in practice. I mean, he was unbelievable. And I think probably the greatest game that – and this is, gets back to the interception issue. In the playoffs against the Colts in 2009 um, – actually, it was 10. And he's facing the Colts of Peyton Manning and Reggie Wayne and those guys. And the Jets put him on Reggie Wayne. And Reggie Wayne had one catch for one yard in the game. And I think that was the only time he was targeted. So Peyton Manning, who's a pretty smart guy, was smart enough to know, I better not throw the ball near Darrell Revis. And I think that's an example why he just didn't have that many interceptions in his career. I think quarterbacks just avoided him. And by the way, that one catch for one yard, I think was on a third and seven play or something like that. So (laughs) it was an insignificant catch. But yeah, no question in my mind, he belongs in the Hall of Fame. Hey, Rich, Wesley uh, Walker played a football when it was a far different game than it is today. In 78, he averaged almost 25 yards a catch on 48 receptions. In eight of his 13th seasons, he averaged over 20 yards a catch. Is he Hall of Fame or Hall of Very Good? Yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, those numbers, I mean, and you noted just the, the era, at, you know, at the time, it was so different. I can't even imagine the numbers he put up now because – I mean, with the uh, back then, there was so much more contact with corners and wide receivers. You know, they could mug the guy halfway down the field. And and now with Wesley's speed, I mean, my gosh, the numbers he would put up now. But in his era, to do what he did um, was tremendous. I just don't know if he did it long enough over a longer, long enough period of time to. to garner the Hall of Fame kind of consideration. And again, injuries too played a part in Wesley's career. But having, you know, I know Wesley pretty well, and, and having talked to players who played with him and against him, there you'd be hard-pressed to find a guy in that era who, who scared more defenses than Wesley. He was just, he could just run by people. Unbelievable speed, and maybe not too many people know this, he was legally blind in one eye and was able to compensate for that and, and had pretty good hands. And so uh, a really, really good player. I just don't know if he, if he meets the, the level of Hall of Fame. Hey, Rich, speaking of running, we got to run to the next break. Thanks so much for the time, and good luck with that Sam Darnold Hall of Fame campaign. <laughs> we'll, we'll be talking in 20 years or so. Or... <laughs> yeah. All right, thanks, guys. Thanks, Rich. Take it easy. That's it. I know. That was ESPN. Rich Samidi up next. It's the only rookie wide receiver started last weekend. So who was it? Stay tuned to find out. This 
is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Ben Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, there were 33 wide receivers taken in this year's NFL draft. You know, Calvin Ridley of Alabama and D.J. Moore of Maryland were first-round draft picks, but neither started in their NFL debut games last weekend. Now, James Washington won the 2017 Belindikoff Award as the top receiver in college football, and he was chosen by the Pittsburgh Seals in the third round. But he didn't start either, and neither did Michael Gallup, a first-team All-America wide receiver selected in the third round by the Dallas Cowboys. There was, in fact, only one, one rookie receiver who started on opening day, and he wasn't even drafted. Any guesses? Well, he's here with us today. It's Vincent Smith of Tiny Limestone College, who's had a meteoric rise in the NFL this summer and who started, yes, started, for the Houston Texans last weekend. Vincent, thanks so much for joining us. How are you doing? Good, thanks. Hey, Vincent, you played your college ball at a Division II school with an enrollment of 1,200 students. A limestone Catawba game doesn't attract the same attention as, say, Clemson and Florida State. So was there ever a fear that the NFL wouldn't find you at limestone, that your talent may slip through the cracks, and you may not get a shot to play at the next level? Uh, yes, yeah, yes, I did. Uh, definitely coming into college as a freshman, you know, I only had two D2 offers, and I decided to go to limestone. It was a brand-new program, so my, first, my, my freshman season was our uh, first playing season. And, you know, coming in, you know, I kind of always had a plan in my mind, you know, always, always going to make it into the NFL. So I always had, like, in my mind how I would make it there somehow, some way. And I thought, you know, I'd transfer after two years of playing at Limestone to South Carolina or Clemson, you know, somewhere in state. But it didn't work out like that. So at first, I, I definitely had doubts I would make it from Limestone. Well, your sister ran track, uh, so obviously speed runs in the family. Uh, and that uh, four three six speed uh, of yours at South Carolina's Pro Day uh, caught the attention, obviously, of a lot of uh, NFL scouts. Uh, and then it was a little bit, as I understand, of a bidding war to sign you after the draft. The Bears and the Vikings, the Giants, the Seahawks are all joining the Texans uh, trying to get you to sign. Uh, when did you start getting calls uh, during the draft? And did any team tell you they were going to draft you uh, and then not do it? Um. You know, you get you do get people from teams that tell you, okay, we're looking. They're never saying for sure we're going to draft. Oh, we're looking, you know, to maybe draft you this round, that round. We think that'll be a good pick. But you know, at the end of the day, it has to come from the head coach, the GM, the owner. You know, from where they're going to draft you. So, listening to that, you know, and get your hopes up. Well, I tried to keep my hopes down. I felt cool, calm, and relaxed the whole day. But then when I realized, you know, hoping I would get drafted. But then when I realized, you know, it was coming to the end of the draft, I get a couple of calls. Fourth, fifth, sixth round, saying, okay, nobody's picking you up. You know, we're going to look to take you right after the draft. You know, keep this on, in your mind and, and keep up with us and we'll try to sign you and draft it. So that's when I realized all the pressure was going to be on me because I had a couple of teams falling. I was going to have to make the right decision of where I was going to go play our first professional ball. What, what went into your decision? Because uh, obviously it gives you a little bit of leverage uh, because you can pick from different teams rather than just uh, being stuck with whoever takes you. So what sort of led you to the Texans? Uh, well, I said uh, Texas is one of the teams that uh, had me come to pre-draft visits, so that definitely helped a lot. You know, getting to know people around the organization, uh, player engagement uh, guy, uh, Mr. JJ Moses. You know, mm-hmm. you know, meeting those people kind of make you feel comfortable around the situation. Seeing the city, seeing what it's like to be out here, makes you feel comfortable with the area. Excuse me, and just talking to our, our GM, Mr. Gaines. You know, the plan that he has in mind for me. How I could obtain it, how I could make the team, and you know, that makes it easier. You know, if you can choose a team. 
Well, Vincent, let me ask you about another guy who's with the Texans, and that's Deshaun Watson. I mean, you grew up in South Carolina. You played college football in South Carolina, and I would imagine the most recognizable football face in South Carolina these days is Deshaun, um, mostly because he quarterbacked Clemson to a national championship. Yeah. So w- was, was that part of the attraction, a chance to play with and catch passes from him? Because, I mean, you had a chance. We talked about Chicago as being one of those teams interested in you. You had a chance to catch on with the Bears where your college coach, who was Mike Furry, is working with receivers, but you chose Houston. Was was Deshaun was Deshaun part of that that uh, reason? I would say at the end of the day, he wasn't. But you know, it's he. You know, it's not only him. It's you know, with the the under DeAndre Hopkins watch, and you know, we got Davion and Bruce Ellington and J. Joe, and you know, all those guys from the state of South Carolina. And you know, is you know, those are guys you talk about every day as a young football guy in South Carolina, but. At the end of the day, it was just, I felt like it was my best chance. I mean, and that's, that was what the hardest part was, was telling Coach Furry, uh, I'm not coming to Chicago, you know, I feel like my best chance is in Houston. You know, that, like I said, that was my hardest decision right there, you know, because, yes, he's my, he's my college head coach, and he, he honestly is one of the big reasons I made it this far, you know. I owe a lot of thanks to him because he's propelled me and, and strengthened my game and made me a better football player overall and got eyes on me to make it to the level. And for me to tell him I'm not going to be able to come with you to Chicago because I feel like my, I got a better chance in Houston, that was hard. But he understood, he understood and he is very supportive of me today. And Vincent, when a player comes to a Division II school, there's always concern if he can make that quantum leap in the caliber of competition to the NFL. And you certainly didn't see the same caliber of cornerbacks in the 12-school Conference Carolinas that you do in the 16-team AFC. Yeah. But in Houston's second preseason game this summer, you caught four passes for 94 yards, including the game-winning 41-yard touchdown in the closing seconds to beat the 49ers. Is that when you realized, hey, I can play with these guys? And what did that game do for your confidence? Uh, Yeah, you know, I definitely see game-wise, that's when I realized. But I started realizing that back in rookie minicamp and OTAs and preseason camp, you know, there's always guys, even on our team, you know, oh, you, you came from a D2 school? Well, keep working hard, you know. I see I see a lot of potential in you, you know. I take that to heart, you know. I appreciate them telling me that. That gives me confidence. But, yes, definitely game-wise, uh, catching that game when the pass and against San Fran was definitely, definitely helped me out, you know. It, just, it, it gives you a boost of confidence, you know. You can make plays on the field under the lights. You're playing with one of the best receivers in, in the league, um, DeAndre Hopkins. Uh, how much have you benefited from watching him and talking with him, playing with him, and sitting sitting in the same meeting rooms with him? Uh, I've benefited a lot. I mean, it's not only that, but you know, we we built a, a good relationship. You know, he looks out for me, and like I said, Bruce too. You know, they're they're from the state of South Carolina. You know, they have, they attracted themselves to me just because you know, I'm from South Carolina. You know, we got that in common, and even Sammy Coates. You know, he's helped me out a lot too, but. It just helps because, you know, you know, some teams, veterans aren't friendly to the rookies. Rookies got to find out, but they help me out a lot. And I know I can ask them any question, you know, but take me seriously and, and help me anywhere I need. Hey, Vincent, just wondering, prior to joining Houston, prior to the NFL, what was the highlight of your football career? I would definitely say uh, being our rivals uh uh, New uh, Newberry for their homecoming. You know, we we had to beat Newberry before. They beat us bad a couple of years before, and and just beating them uh, at their home in the last couple of seconds of the game. That was that was definitely one of my biggest highlights. Just uh, the feeling and being with my teammates and knowing that we beat a team that we wanted to beat since uh, first year. Was that last season? Yes, sir. Did Did you catch a touchdown pass or have a big game in that game? 
um, I caught I caught a I caught a pass and I caught the the pass that set up the game winning field goal. So I wish I scored, but I was down to like a two or three yard line. But that was big. Do you have any mementos from that game? Uh, yes, definitely. Um, uh, that game, and then that was the uh, we only played ten games that season. That was the seventh game, eighth game, and then we had another game, and I had a big game after that. And then I couldn't play my last game over a small ankle injury. My coach just said, "Sit it out." You know, you got much more football left to be played. So I thank Coach Fur for allowing me, you know, not to get injured any further. <laughs> Vincent, how much of an adjustment is it for someone who's used to playing in front of crowds of maybe a couple of thousand people on Saturday afternoons to suddenly playing in front of crowds of 70, 80, and 90,000 on Sundays? Uh, right now, I would say, really, I don't pay attention to the crowd. The only thing that, that makes it hard is just the sound, you know, just getting the communication down. That's the hardest part. But other than that, I don't try to think about how many eyes are on me. But, you know, you do look up there and you see how big the stadiums are and how many people are playing. Like, wow, you got 70,000, 80,000 people coming to watch this play. You know, it, it's big. But at the end of the day, I just try to think about, you know, the balls, the balls going my way. Keep doing what I've been doing the past 12 years of my life. Now, uh, my understanding is you study mathematics uh, in college, so you were certainly preparing yourself for a life uh, without football or after or after football. Um, if this opportunity hadn't come along and you weren't uh, playing professional football, uh, how would you be putting uh, you know your degree to use? What do you think you'd be doing uh, this week if you weren't playing pro football? Oh, uh, right now, well, actually, I, I haven't finished getting my degree. That's a, that's a, one of my things I want to get done pretty soon. I, I only spent six semesters in college, so I missed one my sophomore year because of my last year coach. I, after my first two years, you know, D two ball, you only get half a scholarship, and I was just told him I was paying too much. And he said, "I'm sorry, there's nothing I could do." So I set up that semester, and then Coach Ferry brought me back when he was hired, and I played those two seasons, and I set up this past semester to train. But uh, definitely go get my degree, and I think uh, I think I want a degree in mechanical engineering. I like to open my shop. I love working on cars. So if I wasn't playing football right now, I definitely see me doing that and, and trying to open my own shop. <laughs> well. Vincent, earlier Rick Goslin was asking about just playing in, in front of crowds of uh, 80,000, 90,000. I want to ask you specifically about that crowd last week. You go to Foxborough, and it's a hostile environment, and here comes Tom Brady. Here comes a team that's been in the Super Bowl the last two years. Here comes a team that you've watched on TV for years and years. Same quarterback, same coach, Super Bowls every other year. What was that particular experience like? I mean, did you have to pinch yourself to say, geez, you know, I'm not dreaming here. Um, this is reality. I, I'm actually in here, and Tom Brady's there on the other side. Yeah, uh, it, it was big, you know, getting to the stadium, uh, you know, walking in and you see the Super Bowl banners, and you're like, well, they got what, five of them, five of them, I think, five, six of them. You see them sitting up top, and like I said, you just look at the size of the stadium, and, you know, you they have the pre-game video where you see Tom Brady and the team walking out, and you're like, wow, I'm really about to play against the New England Patriots, you know. Um, we, we know they're tough, but they, they win a lot for a certain reason. But, uh, it, it, you know, it's big, and, you know, going in, it's like, okay, it's probably going to be one of our tougher matchups of the year. And for me to start that game and, and not play bad, you know, we didn't win, but it's a lot of good we can take out of that game to propel ourselves to move forward. Definitely a big confidence boost. But at first, you're like, it's, it's overwhelming, but after you get a couple of plays in, you settle down. Vincent, what, what would you tell undrafted college free agents and D2 players, having gone through this experience, what would you tell them? 
I would tell them to play ever play hard this year. You know, if you have one more year, two more years left playing right now, play it hard, keep your head up, you know, be smart, don't make any off the field mistakes and have a plan of how you want to attack, you know, making your dream to the NFL is it's not easy and you can't let every bad play or a bad day bring you down. It, you know, it it takes a lot to make it, but if you determine and you listen to the right people and you, you really focus, you'll be fine. What uh, we got about thirty seconds left, uh, and, I, and I'm just wondering, what was your plan going in? I mean, you must have known I got to do something to make these guys notice me pretty quickly here. What was your approach going into uh, training camp? Uh, my approach was playing fast, trying to make every play that comes our way, uh, be able to do anything and everything the coaches tell me. You know, I want to show them that I that I can do more than just one or two things on the field. That I'm able to adapt to the way that they teach me how to run a certain route or go to certain plays and uh, special teams too. That's big, especially coming from the D2 level. You know, being being able to play special teams that'll definitely help you make the team. Hey, Vincent, thanks so much for the time and welcome to the NFL. Hope you stick around for a long time. Thank you. I, I thank y'all very much for this interview. Thanks. 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 That was Houston's Vincent Smith, the only rookie wide receiver to start last weekend. Up next is the two-minute drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Okay, Shay, we're near the finish line, so let's hear what you got. That's the two-minute warning. Not bad. That means we're on to the two-minute drill, and guys, I'm ready to get started. If you're Jerry Jones, how do you fix the Dallas Cowboys? Hire a new GM. Hire a new coach, and then get out of the way. Goose is on to the right track, but I'm more specific. Hire the goose to draft his players, and then go let him go find a coach to coach the guys he drafts. If you're Terry Pegula, how do you fix the Buffalo Bills? Applied for admission to the CFL. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's simpler than that, boys. Never ever allow Nathan Peterman to ever again darken your door of, a, of your huddle. Do not let him play. Des Bryant pictures himself with the Patriots or Redskins. Whom do you picture him with? The Hamilton Tiger Cat. <laughs> you are mean. Yeah, First team to lo- the CFL. Exactly. First team to lose a number one receiver. <laughs> what should the Giants do with tackle Eric Flowers? Plant those flowers at guard. <laughs> <laughs> Two things. Buy him a rule book and an agility ladder. J.J. <laughs> Watt or T.J. Watt? At this point in your careers, T.J. Watt. Young legs, healthy legs, and productivity to boot. I say James Watt. <laughs> Without him, we'd have no wattage. <laughs> Wasn't he the interior secretary? Wow. <laughs> uh, how do you explain the new and improved Joe Flacco? A first-round draft pick sitting on the bench behind him. <laughs> uh, facing the unimproved Buffalo Bills pass defense. Yeah, exactly. The NFL will not enforce a national anthem policy this year, so what will it be for 2019? It all depends if the TV ratings continue to sink. <laughs> it will be policy? What policy? Carmen policy? <laughs> what is more holes? The Saints defense or Sonny Corleone and the Godfather? Neither. Looks like Matt Patricia brought the NFL's 29th ranked defense with him from the Chiefs. Gooseman will not let the bearded one up. Uh, look, it is hard to be more aerated than, aerated than Sonny Corleone at that toll booth. Who should evacuate first, people in the path of Hurricane Florence or Bills fans? The quarterbacks in the path of the Denver Broncos pass rush. <laughs> Bills fans, because unlike Hurricane Florence, the Bills aren't leaving anytime soon. 
Joe Namath was Broadway Joe. Mark Sanchez was the Sanchez. You have a nickname for Sam Darnold? Lion Tamer. <laughs> <laughs> Fitting for New York, Sam Goody. That's the end of the game. There you go. We'd like to thank Elvis Dumerville, Vincent Smith, and Rich Samini for joining us. Shay Raft is for producing us and you for listening to us. If you'd like to hear this or any podcast, just go to our website. That'd be talkoffamenetwork.com or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, look for us next week at this time and on this station. We'll be here. We hope you will be too.